So we've been talking about the solas of the Reformation. That word sola is Latin for alone. These five solas summarize. Well, today we're going to talk about a solus, just a different tense of the same word. Solus Christus, only Christ, Christ alone. These solas really summarize what the Reformation was all about, which is interesting from a historical perspective. But since the Reformation was wrapped up in the recovery of the doctrine of justification by faith alone, through Christ alone, grace alone, because it's all wrapped up in that, studying this, both in its historical context and its modern context, ought to stir within us our hearts as we once again meditate on the truth of Christ alone. One other motto of the Reformation, in Latin, they like Latin, is Semper Reformanda. We're all probably familiar with Semper, right? Semper from Semper Fi, always faithful. Semper Reformanda, always reforming. The church reformed, always reforming. We ought always be turning the truth of God's word as it reveals to us the gospel of Jesus Christ and turning it on ourselves, looking internally. Am I living in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And so as we study the Reformation, we spend some time setting it historically, but it is just as relevant today as it was 500 years ago. So today we talk about solus Christus, Christ alone. This is the sola that binds the solas together. The arms of Christ pull together scripture alone and faith alone and grace alone. Really, you can't remove any of the five, but you certainly cannot remove Christ. Our faith is in Christ. God's grace is through Christ. Christ is revealed in the scriptures, and Christ will one day be exalted and every knee shall bow. This is all about Christ. So let's define Christ alone. Our standing before God is secured exclusively and sufficiently. Our standing before God is secured by Christ exclusively and sufficiently. And the Reformation, the issue was less on the exclusively and more on the sufficiently. But I would argue that today we have just as much a problem with the exclusively as the sufficiently. Let me explain what I mean by those two terms. The church, the Roman Catholic Church rather, is agreed with Protestants on the doctrine of the person of Christ, who was Jesus. In fact, if one of you were to come to me and say, I'm really struggling with the Trinity, can you help me out? One of the sources that I would want to turn to that would make all you former Catholics and Lutherans uncomfortable because it brings flashbacks of your childhood would be the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian definition, all these old things that you read or recited every week without thinking about what they meant at all so that they seem dry and dead, all those things are actually incredibly accurate, precise, careful renderings of the doctrine of the Trinity. Very helpful because when we start trying to make the Trinity accessible to modern language, we do a little thing called heresy almost every time. You've heard the illustrations of the Trinity. It's like an egg. You've got the shell. You've got the white. You've got the yolk. That's a heresy. It's like water. It's got liquid form. It's got solid form. It's got vapor form. That also 
is a heresy. All right, any illustration that you come up with for the Trinity is on some level a heresy. It's a hard doctrine. So we can lean on those early church fathers as they wrote in the Nicene Creed. It's an excellent explanation that both Catholics and Protestants and Orthodox alike, with one two-word exception, would hold to together. We do not disagree on the doctrine of who Jesus is, nor would we disagree with the Catholics of the Reformation on the fact that Jesus was exclusive. The, the Catholic Church, although in modern Catholicism you get a little bit of fuzziness, but the Catholic Church in official doctrine does not say that you can get to God through any path but Christ. They're not universalists. It's not whatever works for you is fine. Now, in our culture today, certainly we have that idea. Well, that works for you. Your truth is good for you. That idea in our culture, that sentence just makes no sense. Truth is exclusive by definition. Yet we live in a world where people make their own truth, a post-truth society. What I think works for me. And so you'll get people who say, I have no problem with religion. Just don't tell me your religion is right. As long as you believe it and you don't tell me about it, then I'm fine with it. That's how our world views religion. But the Christian, including the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, would say Jesus is true. He is the only true way to the Father. What we disagree on is the sufficiency of Jesus. And that's the debate in the Reformation. Is Christ alone Christ enough? Is only Christ sufficient for salvation? Or is there cooperation? Is there something we bring in? I'll phrase it negatively. We are not saved by Jesus and, that would be sufficient, Jesus plus something else, nor are we saved by Jesus or, Jesus or something else. We are saved by Christ alone. Sufficiently, doesn't need any help. Exclusively, there's no other path to God. That's the doctrine of Christ alone. How does this crop up in the Reformation? We'll read a couple of the Catholic accounts. This from the Council of Trent, the Counter-Reformation. After Luther publishes the 95 Theses, the Reformation's going on. About 50 years later, there's the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent, the church gets together and says, we got to do something about these reformers. They're messing everything up. And so they write a document which deals with the doctrines argued in the Reformation. You look back, the Catholic Church traces their line all the way back to Jesus. So at what point did it not become the true church? This is a place where you can actually mark a line in the sand. Before this, there was a mix of error. At the point of the Council of Trent is where the church enshrines the error. The church makes the error official at Trent. What does Trent say about Christ alone? If anyone saith that the sacraments of the new law are not necessary unto salvation, sacraments of the new law referring to the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church, five of which are not in the Bible, are not necessary unto the salvation, but superfluous or extra, and that without them or without the desire thereof, men obtain of God through faith alone the grace of justification. Though all sacraments are not intended, indeed necessary for every individual, let him be anathema. So what are they saying? If you say that you can be right with God without sacraments, 
lets you be accursed. Okay? He's being like Paul and Galatians. This is a damnable heresy, according to the church, to believe that salvation comes through Christ alone without the addition of the sacraments. Catholic Catechism, so we're now in the modern church, 1993. What are some of the things that are added on? And the ecclesial service, or the church service, of the ordained minister. It is Christ himself who is present to his church as head of his body, shepherd of his flock, high priest and redemptive sacrifice, teacher of truth. This is what the church means by saying that the priest, by virtue of the sacrament of holy orders, acts in persona Christi Capitis, more Latin, and the person of Christ the head. So what this is saying in the Catholic Catechism from just 20 years ago, a little over 20 years ago, this is saying that when the priest is functioning in the church, he is functioning in the place of Christ as head. So the work of the priest in the church and saying the words of institution which transform the elements of communion into the physical body and blood of Christ, he is actually acting as Christ. So the priest is Christ in person in the church. The priest is then the mediator between God and man. Now they would say he is acting on behalf of Christ, but he himself is the person of Christ in the church. Going on, the ministerial priesthood has the task not only of representing Christ, head of the church, before the assembly of the faithful, but also of acting in the name of the whole church when presenting to God the prayer of the church, and above all, when offering Eucharistic sacrifice. So again, it's saying... The church needs the priest to come to the church from God and to God from the church. So the priest is functioning as Christ in the church, this mediator. And so the Catholic Church, this and, and other areas, denies that Christ alone is the sufficient mediator. We need priests in addition to Christ. We need sacraments in addition to Christ, is the argument of the Roman Catholic Church. What do the reformers say? Our first one we'll look at is Philip Melanchthon. He's Luther's assistant. He works along with him. By the end of his life, he manages to tick off both the Lutherans and the rest of the reformers because he kind of he's a little bit of a pragmatic guy. But he is an important author in the Reformation. He writes this, When we say that we are justified by faith, we are saying nothing else than that for the sake of the Son of God we receive remission of sins and are accounted as righteousness saying when we're talking about justification by faith we're saying that only in christ exclusively and sufficiently in christ do we stand justified before god it is the righteousness of christ that god looks upon when he looks upon me and declares me just it is not the righteousness of christ plus the things i do to cooperate with it it is christ exclusively christ sufficiently zacharias or sinus this is another German reformer. He writes the Heidelberg Catechism, which we'll look at in a second. Because we are justified by the object of faith alone. What's the object of faith alone? Christ. Okay? We are justified by the object of faith alone. That is by the merits of Christ only. So merits, that's another word dealing with this theology. Am I meriting salvation? Are the things that I'm doing giving me credentials before God? We are justified by faith alone, that is, the merits of Christ only, without which we can have no righteousness whatsoever. For we are justified for Christ's sake, 
nothing but the merit of Christ can be our righteousness in the sight of God. Either as a whole or a part only, we are justified only by believing and receiving the righteousness of another and not by our own works or merit. So the doctrine of the reformers is to say it is only the righteousness of Christ which allows me to stand before God. That's it. Nothing else. Not my merits. My merits are offensive to God. Only the righteousness of Christ. Calvin says this, there is no other satisfaction whereby offended God can be propitiated or appeased. Propitiated is kind of another way of saying appeased. He, and he's commenting on 1 John chapter 2 here, he does not say God was once for all reconciled to you through Christ. Now seek for yourselves another means. When we are reconciled to God through Christ, that's it. It is settled. He also says this, The more detestable, therefore, is the fiction of those who, not content with the priesthood of Christ, have dared to take it upon themselves to sacrifice them. So he's talking about the priests and the mass taking it upon themselves to sacrifice him, a thing daily attempted in the papacy where the mass is represented as an immolation or a sacrifice of Christ. And here are two more quotations that are incredibly helpful. The Heidelberg Catechism, this is a question and answer document. It's still one of the governing documents of most Reformed churches, like the Dutch Reformed churches in this area. Heidelberg Catechism says this, Do such then believe in Jesus, the only Savior, who seek their salvation and happiness in saints or themselves or anywhere else? So the question is, if you're seeking your salvation in the saints or in something else, are you a believer in Jesus? They do not. For though they boast of him in words, yet in deeds they deny Jesus, the only deliverer and savior. For one of these two things must be true, that either Jesus is not a complete savior, or that they who by a true faith receive this Savior must find all things in him necessary to their salvation. There's no choice. Either Jesus is your Savior or you're your Savior. That's the option. There's no middle ground where it's a little Jesus and a little you. It's either Jesus or it is you. And this, perhaps, the most comforting, encouraging, wonderful theological words written outside of the Bible. Question one from the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. What is our only hope in life and death? That I belong both body and soul, both in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So the Reformation set up a stark contrast. On one side, you have Christ who starts your salvation and you who cooperates, along with the church working in you. On the other hand, the Reformers say, relying only on Jesus. My only hope and in life and death is that I belong both body and soul. 
So that is the tension set up in the Reformation. So I hope you know where I'm going to fall on this. But let's look biblically what does the Bible have to say. First, let's actually back up a little bit. What is the effect of believing solus Christus, Christ alone in the Reformation? How does that affect how the church functions? For one thing, it's going to change how they view the sacraments, right? So if the sacraments are the working of the thing worked is the idea that just by partaking of the sacraments, almost magically God is working in you. It's going to take that away because it's not the sacraments, it's Christ, right? It's going to change that. It's going to change the idea of confessing your sins to a priest as something that merits God's favor because it's only in Christ. It's not in the priest who offers salvation. It destroys any sense of the mediatorial role of the saints who go between God and man with their merits. No, Christ alone. It ends the rule of the church as the one who dispenses salvation. No, it's not the church. It's Christ alone. It removes the need for purgatory. We don't need purgatory if we believe in Christ alone because he's sufficiently and completely paid for our sins. It makes the whole practice of selling indulgences then irrelevant. No purgatory, no indulgences. You can't buy your way out of purgatory. So this doctrine is very central to what's happening in the Reformation. You can understand if it kind of destroys all of this stuff, why it became such a big issue. We're going to look at one text this morning to defend the idea of Solus Christus. Of course, we could look at a lot of texts to defend this idea, right? We could just pretty much open to any page of the New Testament and we could start working through this concept from that page. But we're going to be in John, John chapter 13 and 14. John chapter 13. All right, so Jesus is in his earthly ministry. He's going around, he's teaching, he's talking to the disciples, he's nearing the end. And these words come near the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. We'll start in verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So what's the setting? We're not going to dwell on the love verses here. We'll be in this chapter in a few months probably. Anyway, we'll talk about that more then. But what's Jesus doing in this passage? He's saying, I'm going to leave. Right now, people know you're my followers because I'm here and you're right behind me. All right? It's a visual indication. You follow Jesus. How do you know that? Well, Jesus is here and you're here also. Pretty simple. But I'm going to leave. When I leave, people will know you're my followers because you love one another. Well, Peter hears this and it puzzles him. Peter, always slow to speak. No, Peter, kind of the most aggressive of the disciples, he responds. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. So Jesus says, I'm leaving. Peter says, well, where are you going? I want to go with you too. 
It's like my kids. I'm walking out the door. Daddy, where are you going? I'm going to work. Can I come too? I actually want to get work done. So no, they want to come along. Jesus is leaving. The disciples love him and they want to go too. So Peter's response is, I want to go, but not just that. Not just I want to go. He says, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Idea here, Peter's saying, you're leaving. Well, I'm going to leave too. I'm going to go with you because I'm such a great follower of yours that I'm going to lay down my life to follow you. I am the one who can get me to be where you're going. See, Peter here is missing the exclusivity of Christ. Peter is saying, hey, I think I've got my own way. I've got my own way to get you. I'm going to lay down my life. Jesus says, I'm leaving. Peter says, I can get to where you're going. Jesus says, no, you can't. Verse 38, Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? So Peter says he will. So Jesus is going to say, will you? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. All right? So Peter says, I'm going to follow you. Jesus says, no, you're not. You can't do what I'm going to do. You are not enough. Jesus continues on, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Jesus in love corrects Peter, says, no, you're not getting there. You're not laying your life down and following me. In fact, when the chance comes for you to lay down your life, you're going to pretend you don't even know me. You cannot get there by yourself. But Jesus, as the comforter who loves Peter, then follows that up, says, I'm leaving, but I'm leaving to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you. Notice Jesus' solution is not, I'm going to come back and eventually you're going to be able to make it. Nope. I'm going to come back and I will take you there. You're not getting where I'm going by your own efforts, Peter. You're going to fall short. And he does fall short before the cock crows twice. And then we follow it up. We get to Acts. And there's other examples of Peter falling short. I like Peter because he messes up and I mess up. And it's encouraging to see that even Peter had some problems. And so Peter is kind of arrogant here. He doesn't believe that Jesus is his only hope. He denies exclusivity. He's going to find his own way to satisfaction. But he's not the only one who has a problem. So Jesus says, disciples, I'm leaving. Peter says, I'm going to go with you. Jesus says, no, you can't. Then Thomas is going to come in with a very different attitude. Good old doubting Thomas. We see a bit of a foretaste of doubting Thomas here. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? So he's kind of missing the point, right? He says, Lord, you're leaving and we don't know where you're going. So how in the world can we find you? Your GPS won't help you if you don't know the destination, right? You're not going to get there if you don't know where you're going. So Thomas has a level of hopelessness. Peter comes in and says, I can get there. Jesus says, no, you can't. Thomas comes in and says, I can't get there. Don't even know where you're going. It's hopeless. But Jesus says that he can take him. Verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. 
from now on you do know him and have seen him. Both responses, Peter and Thomas, are missing who Jesus is. Both of them are very self-centered. Even though Peter is self-centered in an arrogant way, and Thomas is self-centered in a hopeless way, they are both self-centered. They're both missing Christ alone. They're both misunderstanding Jesus. So Peter says, I can do it by myself. Jesus says, no, you can't. Thomas says, well, I'm hopeless. I can't possibly do it. And Jesus says, yes, you can. But the key, the linchpin that ties all of that together is what we see in two different sections. In verses 1 through 4, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. So you're struggling here. You're wondering, how can I possibly go where Jesus goes? Peter thinks he can do it. Jesus says he can't. Thomas thinks he can't do it. Jesus says he can't. How in the world can this happen? Believe in God. Believe also in me. Don't worry. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in me. I'm going to prepare a place for you. So trust me. There's a long view in mind. Jesus is still leaving. And when he leaves, he's not taking the disciples right away. Both Peter and Thomas, tradition tells us, ended up dying for Jesus. They both laid down their lives for Jesus. But the fact that they laid down their lives for Jesus did not get them where they wanted to go. The only reason that they get to where they want to go, that they get to go with Jesus, is because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Because Jesus comes back and brings them. Both Peter and Thomas miss solus Christus. Both of them try and ground some of their hope in themselves. And Peter ends up with false confidence, and Thomas ends up with no confidence. But Jesus corrects them by saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Don't worry, believe in me. Jesus points to himself as the only hope that Peter has for going to be with Jesus, as the only hope that Thomas has. And in the Reformation, this was the doctrine that was being rediscovered. It is not Jesus plus my cooperation. It is not Jesus plus the work of the church. It is Jesus through faith, which he works in us through the proclamation of his word, according to Romans 10. It is Jesus who will save us. It is Jesus who will bring us to be with his Father. It is Jesus who is preparing a place. It is Jesus who is coming back again. It is Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. It is not in any sense or in any way me. It's not anyone else besides Jesus. He is exclusively Christ alone. He is sufficiently Christ alone. There's no one else, and he is enough. What a glorious truth to fill our hearts with. We need this every day. We need this residing in our sinful hearts because we are guilty. We are sinful. And a day does not go by where that wicked sin nature inside us does not remind us that we are sinful. Every day I am reminded. Every single day. I'm reminded of my sinfulness. I'm reminded of the fallenness of the world, the brokenness of the world. And I must turn at every turn to Christ alone because he is the only one who gives me hope. He is the one who gives sufficient hope. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in Jesus. How does this apply to us today? He said this is just as relevant in 2017 as it was in 1517. 
It's incredibly significant today. If you are here and you are not someone who has believed in Jesus, an unbeliever, how does this apply to you? There's only one hope for salvation. Stop trying to save yourself. Now, most unbelievers aren't going to use that language. They're not going to say, I'm trying to save myself, right? That's very Christianese language. It's one of the challenges when we're sharing the gospel, right? That we're using language that normal people don't use. You need to be saved. Okay, what does that mean? From what? Okay, it just doesn't connect. Yet, those in the world without their hope in Christ are all trying to save themselves. They're all trying to find satisfaction. They might not think that salvation means going to heaven to be with God, but that everybody intuitively knows there's something missing with where I am and where I want to be. And so where do we look to improve ourselves? Where do we look for meaning? Maybe we look to our jobs, our abilities, our gifts, our money, our families, our relationships, whatever it is that we're looking to, what we're ultimately doing outside of Christ is we're saying, I'm not complete. If I do this, I will get more complete. We're working towards fixing ourselves. So every time the paycheck comes in, you put a percentage in savings because that savings is going to make me feel better. The things that I am worried about now, I won't be worried about if I have enough in savings. When you're not feeling great, you go home and you grab the ice cream and you eat the whole thing because it's going to make me feel better. I've got a problem and ice cream is the solution. I've got a problem and money is the solution. I've got a problem and if I just find someone to marry, that will be the solution. I've got a problem and sex is the solution. I've got a problem and pleasure is the solution. Whatever it is, our world is filled with people trying to solve their own problems. They don't understand the magnitude of the problem in the first place, and they certainly don't understand the solution. But everything that we turn to ends up falling short because there is only one hope, because all of us share in only one problem. We may think we have different problems from one another, some of us may have more of a problem with a lack of money than others. Some of us may have more of a problem with health than others. Some of us may be more desperate for relationships than others. But the truth is, all those different manifestations of a problem are fundamentally the same. I was made for a relationship with God, and my sin has prevented that from happening, and I will face God's wrath. And because we all share the same problem, we all share the same solution. And so we turn to Christ alone. He is the only answer to our real problems. But the assurance, the comfort in this is he's the only answer, but he is the answer. Not only do we not look for an answer elsewhere, we can look to Christ because he is sufficient. He is able. He is everything we need. And in him, we have the very righteousness of God credited to our account. We have the spirit of God dwelling in our hearts. He provides us everything that we could possibly need to solve our real problem. And so, turn to Christ. He is the answer to every problem. Believers, is our application really that different? I would hope not. Maybe you have turned to Christ, you have believed in Christ, you have placed your faith in him. 
However, the same basic principle applies. The same Christ who is sufficient for your conversion is sufficient in your life. What is weighing you down this morning? They're all probably weighed down by different things. I'm weighed down by the fact that I found out I have to replace my boiler this week. Those are not cheap, and they don't make your house look nicer. I guess more comfortable, but like, it's just, it's no fun. And it can wear on us. Those little burdens. Is it a big deal in the grand scheme of life? No. But what do you think about? Your, your mind is calm, so you've got to worry about something, right? And so we make these problems and they weigh us down. Maybe it's your children. Children aren't doing what you would hope that they would do. They're not following Christ as you would hope that they would follow Christ. And so that weight gets in your heart and it pokes at you and it tenses you up and it makes you miserable. Maybe it's your body. It's just not working the way it's supposed to. Maybe it's age has caused your body to slowly but surely turn against you. Maybe it's even a mental issue where you have a mental health problem where your body makes it harder for you to think right. And you're struggling and you're frustrated and that weight, it weighs you down, it burdens you and you look for solutions to your problem. And what are the solutions? We look all over, if I can just get a little bit more money, I can just have a better relationship. I can just look at this thing. If I can just do that thing. We look for these solutions all over the place. And you know what ends up happening? Just like someone outside of Christ, those solutions don't even solve our actual problem. They're just messiahs that we create for ourselves, And they don't deliver. Turn to Christ alone. Turn to Christ alone. Your greatest problem in life is not the cost of your boiler replacement. Your greatest problem in life is not the behavior of your children. Your greatest problem in life is not your physical illness. Your greatest problem in life is that you are separated from a holy God outside of Christ, and that's already been taken care of if you're a believer in him. What a cause for joy. And when I am suffering now, I must recognize this is short term. When Jesus says, believe in me, because I'm coming back again, he expects them to wait. They did not even know how hard it was going to be to wait. Peter did not know when Jesus says, just wait, believe, I'm going to return. He didn't know that he would be hanging upside down on a cross, thinking, now would be a good time for you to return, Jesus. He didn't know that. But Jesus says, believe in me. Wait for me. I've already shown myself to be worthy of your trust. And he would show himself through his resurrection from the dead to be worthy of trust. So wait, believe him, trust him. Christians, as we go through this life of vanity under the sun, wait, trust. Our only hope is found in Christ. He is the only one who can give us meaning. Repent of the false Christ that you use to wrap up your identity so you can feel in control. If your false Christ is money, then you can get it. If your false Christ is health, then your hope is that you can do something to get it. Get rid of them. Look to the true Christ, the Messiah, the one who we can rely on. Christ alone will never leave you. 
Christ alone gives water so you thirst no more. Christ alone gives salvation to all who will enter through him. Christ alone gives us an easy yoke and a light burden. Christ alone speaks to us that our joy may be full. Christ alone makes us bear fruit when we abide in him. Christ alone is coming again. He is our hope for salvation and for life and godliness. Christ exclusively and Christ sufficiently. Let's pray. Lord, may our confidence and our trust be only in you, knowing that you are able to provide all that we need and you will provide all that we need, knowing that there is no other alternative for us to turn to because you are God in the flesh. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.